Thanks for joining us for today's edition of Lessons for Living. His word so fresh in our hearts abound. His word made flesh in the here and now. A new life is beginning. Lord, let us hear your lessons for living. Lord, let us hear your lessons for living. Paul will say, the Bible says, God says, A believer cannot marry an unbeliever because there will absolutely be no agape commitment. There'll be no spiritual commitment. There'll be no spiritual intimacy. You can't pray together. You don't believe the same way. You're going to have trouble raising the children. One's going to go to church. One's not. You just can't do that. Now, second, there has to be this natural human affection, this best friends, that's the way I use it, a relational intimacy in a marriage. And last, of course, is the passion and the arrows. Studies show that the failure rate for marriages in the body of Christ is roughly the same as it is outside the church. As followers of God, this should not be. The logical thing to do is to try to figure out why. Pastor Mark will be addressing some of this in his teaching today. He'll be talking about the problems the Corinthian church was having with the same issues, sexuality, marriage, and divorce, and what the Apostle Paul had to say about it. You might find that today's church has some of the same problems. Remember, there's quite a few ways to receive a copy of Pastor Mark's teaching. We'll be sharing all that information with you at the close of today's broadcast. Now, here's Pastor Mark in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 with today's edition of Lessons for Living. First Corinthians chapter 7. Now, when you talk about marriage, there's a many, many things that are out through the scriptures. And I was looking at the USA Today just a few days ago, and here was the title article. Importance of marriage is dropping among Americans. While the majority of Americans are either married or want to be married someday, the number of those who consider important has declined over the last seven years. This suggests that a sizable percentage of Americans who would like to get married still don't think it's important that they do so. Additionally, and here's what we're seeing more and more now, as you understand, the younger generation I'll speak to you about in one of the teachings on Wise Up. Additionally, younger Americans are significantly less likely than older groups to believe people should marry when making a lifetime commitment or even having a child. The Census Bureau talks about this. The rate of 9.9 marriages per thousand in 1987 has fallen to 6.8 in 2011. Just continues to go down and down. So what we're going to see Paul addresses. Now, as you turn to 1 Corinthians 7, let me just preface it with a couple things quickly. So if you can get this overview, it'll make sense to you as you go through. Now, Paul is actually in this chapter answering questions. Remember, he was 18 months, established his church, went away, and then he hears all these things that are happening that he had to correct them about. 
But these were questions that people had written to him from the church. So he is responding to those from another city where he was. And as he does this, it's going to be about marriage and a little bit of divorce, singleness. And the whole thing is kind of a picture of what was happening in the church. You'll see that. Now, let me just preface it with one thing. When you go back to Genesis chapter 2, God is the one that established marriage. And remember what he said. It is not good for a man to be what? To be alone. So that's one of the major reasons that we get married. It's not good for the man to be in the front room and he's the only one that's got the clicker and doesn't care if any else is by No, it's not good for a man to be alone. Okay? So understand that premise as I go through because Paul is going to talk a little bit about celibacy. In other words, there's a gifting of celibacy. People just don't have the gift to get married. But marriage is also a gift. And very small percentage of people ever created have the gift of celibacy. Some do. And then he's going to talk about spouses whose their spouse has passed away. He'll address all those issues. And we'll talk a little bit about Paul and what his condition was as we go through this. Now, obviously, in chapter 7, this is not like a big theological thing on marriage. When I usually, every couple of years, I'll do a four- or five-week teaching on marriage, do the whole thing. This covers lots of principles about how to have a marriage and what to do, what you're single, and then what to do about this divorce problem. Let's begin in chapter 7, verse 1. Now, for the matters you wrote about, they wrote to Paul asking questions. It is good for a man not to touch a woman. That's all I'm going to say. We're going home. (laughs) Pretty much settles it, doesn't it? Well, let's see. What does your Bible say? It is good for a man not to marry. No amens out there, please, because you have to go home. Now, the better translation is what I just said. Not to touch a woman, where touch means sexual intercourse. Now, why would Paul write this? Well, because there was all kinds of confusion in the church about marriage and about sexuality. And it had come to a place that celibacy and singleness made a person much more spiritual. In other words, if you were married and enjoying the sexual privilege that God gives, well, you really weren't spiritual. So Paul has to write and try to balance that wrong teaching. As always, there's people that go one side to the other. Remember, the Gnostics believed that the body really had nothing to do. Your spirit was the only thing that went to heaven. You can do whatever you want with your body. So you have people over here. He talked about chapter 6. Everybody's having sex. Who cares? A thousand prostitutes came down. The people in the church were having it. To the opposite side, even married people. Well, celibacy is the highest calling of God. So, sorry, we're in a marriage. We're not going to have any more sex anymore. And so Paul has to write to this problem. Now, understand, Paul is going to say, wait a minute. Being married doesn't make somebody a second-class citizen spiritually. Not at all. Now, Paul knew, he absolutely knew, that celibacy was not the norm. It was unusual. A very small percentage of the people are gifted by God that way. So Paul knew that God himself, as I just read to you, Paul knew the Old Testament from Genesis, that God had ordained marriage for all of humanity. By the way, that's how you got here, in case you didn't know. 
That's how we all got here. Not from celibacy, but from people who were married. That was God's intent. Now look at verse 2. But since there is so much immorality, each man should have his own wife, and each woman her own husband. Now I'm not going there tonight, because this isn't the topic. But understand what you just read. Each man should have his what? Not another man. Each woman shouldn't. And don't make fun, because we have a huge problem with this. Each woman should not have another woman. Each man should have a wife, and each wife should have a husband. That's the way it is. Now, Paul says husbands and wives should be having sexual relations. God gave reasons for marriage many. I already gave you the first one. It's not good for a man to be alone. Marriage is the foundation of our society, a home. You'll see that in a moment. And children were to be raised and modeled Christianity in a home. That was always God's plan from right at the beginning. So marriage was another big thing. This isn't the only reason you get married by any means, but this is huge. Write it down, first key. Marriage is God's provision for sexual fulfillment. God made all of us sexual beings, just like we have a thirst and we have a desire to be loved. God made us that way. It's a God-given desire. Now, watch what happens in the interesting wordings, verse 3. The husband should fulfill his marital duty to his wife, and likewise the wife to the husband. The New King James gives us a better understanding of that. None of you want to leave here and say to your spouse, all right, I'm going to fill my obligation. Let's go in the bedroom. That isn't going to work too well for the roses and the romantic song that's going to happen. So let's read the New King James, and it gives us a different picture of what that wording really means. Let the husband render his wife the affection due. The word render means a debt that we owe to our spouse. Now, we'll talk about that in a moment, but there's lots of debts that we owe in our marriage. I'll get to that in a moment. But notice, it would read like this if you use it. Husbands, give your wives the debt you owe them. Wives, give your husbands the debt you owe them. Now, here's the triangle of intimacy in a marriage. Intimacy in a marriage is not just sexual. Intimacy in the marriage really has to do with three kinds of love. It starts with a commitment. There's a spiritual intimacy in our life. And Paul will say, the Bible says, God says, a believer cannot marry an unbeliever because there will absolutely be no agape commitment. There'll be no spiritual commitment. There'll be no spiritual intimacy. You can't pray together. You don't believe the same way. You're going to have trouble raising the children. One's going to go to church. One's not. You just can't do that. Now, second, there has to be this natural human affection, this best friends, that's the way I use it, a relational intimacy in a marriage. And last, of course, is the passion and the arrows. All three of those, a spiritual intimacy, a relational intimacy, and a sexual intimacy, need to be in our marriages. That's what makes a marriage healthy. If one part is missing, there's problems. By the way, if you're dating, of course, the sexual can't be fulfilled yet until you're married, but all three of those should be there. It's the balance. God gives us balance, otherwise our marriages will not operate properly. Now, everyone who is married knows that marriage, by and large, I say this to all the couples that I do the premarital, you're getting ready to embark on the hardest thing you've ever done in all your life. Could I hear an amen with that? 
That's right. The rest of you aren't married. That's your problem. Absolutely. Hardest thing. But it is the greatest thing in life that we know in humans, isn't it? It just absolutely is. So everyone knows that it's fantastic, but there's stressors in marriage. Our premarital, all of us, pretty much, our premarital expectations were unrealistic. It just didn't pan out that way. For both sides, men and women were designed by God to be very different. They are different in a lot of different ways. Husbands, when we come to the sexual area, huge difference. And let me just say this because this has been proven over and over again. Quite often in a marriage, because we're not balanced the way we should be, husbands often give intimacy to get sex. And wives give sex to get intimacy. Wrong motives. But we kind of have to work through that. Now, what are the debts that you might have in your marriage? Well, a husband is to love his wife like God loves the church. How did God love it? He gave his life for it. So I'm to love my wife. That's a debt I owe her. When I had that commitment before God, I'm to love my wife as God loves the church. Now, that love is agape. That's unselfish love. How hard is that for us? That's very hard. Because every one of you listening to me is selfish by nature. That's our sin nature. It's all about me, but it isn't. Second, the wife, what debt does she owe? The wife is to respect and submit to her husband. So each partner in marriage takes their own responsibility. And it doesn't work like this. If you'll love me, then I'll respect you. No, we do that. It's a debt I owe. I just do that, regardless of what happens with the other spouse. See, that's where you are going far and above what my selfish nature would want. Now, each partner in a marriage takes this personal responsibility to meet all kinds of needs of their spouse. So sexual needs, affection, and of course the spiritual aspect, which we'll talk about at the end. In a marriage, if there's any place where you and I need to be givers, it's a marriage, not a taker. The only way that can happen in my life and your life is to be filled with the Spirit of God, the fruit of the Spirit that's going to come out and exhibit itself in our marriage. Now, some of you come from a background, I'm not sure how prevalent it's taught, but I know it was for many, many years, that the reason for marriage only, and taught by a large church, was procreation, only to have children. The sexual thing was kind of a by thing, it's not at forefront. That's totally wrong. God designed us for procreation for sure, But for relationship, again, not to be alone, but also he designed us sexual. If he didn't design us that way, if that wasn't one of the things, that fulfillment, then he wouldn't have never designed it that way at all. Now, notice 1 Corinthians 7, 3 in the New Living Translation. I think it says it really well. The husband should fulfill his wife's sexual needs, and the wife should fulfill her husband's needs. So, What is that debt? Next thing you can write, the loving responsibility in a marriage is to maintain, because Paul's going to talk about the sexual mostly. I'll talk later more about the affection. Maintain regular sexual relations. So Paul is saying, if you're married, we know that God gave you the gift. And so that sexual expression of love can only really happen in a marriage. Can't happen before marriage. And it's not supposed to happen outside of marriage, adultery, affairs. Now, look at verse 4. It goes even farther. The wife's body does not belong to her alone, but also 
to her husband. In the same way, the husband's body does not belong to him alone, but also to his wife. Remember how God designed marriage. So that through the union of one husband and one wife, two people, we don't see this anywhere else, two people become one flesh. They become one. So God's marriage covenant, when we got married, he gave each partner the right over the spouse's body for the satisfaction of the other. Now, when you read that, selfish people, what happens in a marriage if a selfish person reads verse 4? What happens in a marriage if a selfish person reads verse 4? Well, what can you have? You can have physical abuse. You can have coercing. Or you can have, on the other side, stubborn rejection. I don't care if my bottom line is you're not. Forget it. And they go, well, no, you, you buy your mind. And so it's abuse. The thing that I want to mention to you both ways, using sex as some kind of a mean of control in marriage is not biblical. How can there be love if that is a controlling force? I'll punish you if you don't. No way that's going to happen. That is not a giver. That is not a debt we owe. So to balance that, so you understand what I'm saying, because as you know, in our world, we have a lot of abuse in homes, outside of homes. We have a lot of abuse with sexual children. If you go to Thailand and Vietnam, it's pitiful. And so Satan takes what's supposed to be special, and he abuses it. So I want you to write this next statement. If you're married, if you think of getting married, you'll understand these. Sexual relations must be mutually agreeable. And you'll see this in a moment in a different way. Very interesting. See, the two of us are one. We're one. We're walking together. Can two walk together unless they agree? No, they cannot. Amos 3.3 3 says. So we walk together. We're doing life as a team. And that means in every single aspect. Helping with the dishes. When the kid's sick at night. Whatever. Everybody gets up. Take care of the kid. Have to do this, that, and the other. We just share. We just change responsibilities to do whatever it is to make the family function in a good way. Now, look at verse 5. Paul says this, Do not deprive each other except by mutual consent. I'll come back to that in a moment. In other words, agreed upon. And for a time. In other words, limited for a time. So that you may devote yourselves, maybe this is why you would do it, to prayer. Then come together again so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Now, I was thinking about that this week, and I was studying about it. What if your spouse says to you, we've got a situation, so we need to fast and pray? And you go, okay, well, according to this, if we're really going to fast and pray, then we're not going to be making love. How often do you want to do that? Well, I believe God is calling me to do that for the next 15 days, every month. Anybody ready to go home? (laughs) What would that be? Foolish. Would that be foolish? You're going to see in a moment why foolish is. And we don't get what happens. So, of course, that's not balanced. Now, notice these words. Do not deprive each other. The pastors here that do marriage counseling, it never fails to amaze us the number of Christian couples that come in for counseling. 
And during this, one of the things that we always bring up, we talk about what are the things that need to be corrected, what are the things that are the pins that are out of place, the doors coming off the marriage, what are these things? And you ask each person to kind of tell us top two or three things, and we work through those things. It never fails to amaze us. It still happens today that when you head to the sexual area, and you ask the wife, and then you ask the husband, Many, many times. I wish I didn't have to say this. Now, I haven't done marriage counseling for quite a while, so you don't have to worry about anybody being here. Don't like, oh, you're over here. Now, Dave might be here, but he's not talking, so you're okay. (laughs) Here's what we discovered. Well, how often do you make... We're not after like 2.2 times a week or whatever. We're just asking, how are things going in that area? That's not the only question. We're asking all these things. How are you doing together? Do you ever have a date night? You ever go and hold each other's hands and walk on the beach? I mean, is there an affection? Is there an emotion thing like that? Do you enjoy doing things together? Do you pray together? Is there a spiritual part? Well, in the sexual, remember that triangle, three. And quite often we'll hear this. Oh, once a year, twice a year. As if pretty normal, huh? Well, no, that's not normal. And then you begin to understand, by the way, and that's not all just the lady, and that's not all the guy. It's a big mixture. So when you begin looking at that, what is the first three words you read in verse 5? Say them with me. Let's say them together. Do not what? Deprive. You say, well, once a year is fine, Pastor Mark. No, you weren't made to make love once a year. That is not fine. Now, what is that? That's a violation of God's design. If I'm going to be loving as a spouse, I have to learn to meet my spouse's sexual needs. Again, within boundaries, of course, on both sides. So we have to learn both to be sensitive and loving. It needs to be balanced. And if you'll honor God by loving your mate, God will bless you. I wrote this down many years ago when I started teaching on marriage. When you please your spouse sexually... You destroy your own selfishness. Now, that works both ways. We always joke with the wife with a headache or whatever, okay? Well, maybe there is a headache. Maybe there's a sickness. So what's the husband going to do? It's okay. It's fine when you're feeling better. Same thing. Wife wants to make love. Husband comes home. Man, I'm beat up. Had a terrible day at work. It was really difficult. What is the loving wife going to say? Okay? Come on. Let's just kick back, relax. Two nights, three nights from now, we'll make love. Does that make sense to you guys? Do not deprive. Now, understand, as you go through this, some other things are happening here. There's not just the sexual part, but there's this friendship part, this communication part. Write this down. What is Paul saying? There needs to be what? Mutual consent. Well, how do you get to mutual consent? The importance of communication in marriage. By the way, the number one place of conflict is where? in the home. Why? Because you got two imperfect people forever going to be married. Hallelujah. That's what we are, aren't we? And so it is the place where we work all this up. Today you heard Pastor Mark teach about the problems the Corinthian church was having sorting biblical sexuality from worldly sexuality. We found out that the church today has been having the same problem with a lot of the same results. Pastor Mark told you about God's original plan for men and women, God's gift of sex to them, and how mankind's messed it up. 
Lessons for Living is the teaching ministry of Pastor Mark Balmer of Calvary Chapel, Melbourne. We have multiple campuses to reach those living in Melbourne, Sebastian and Vieira. All campuses meet each weekend and on Wednesdays to spend time collectively raising our voices in worship to our Most High God and studying the truth and blessings found in His Word. For more information, directions, and service times, visit LessonsForLivingRadio.com and click on the church link at the bottom of the page. Pastor Mark will be continuing this series in 1 Corinthians 7 next time. He'll be talking more about the biblical relationship that a husband and wife should have. You'll hear about the different aspects of their relationship, how those can get out of whack, and God's solution for marital ills. You'll find out that your relationship can be even better than it is right now. We wish we had more time today, but we will have to pick up where we left off next time as Pastor Mark continues teaching through this series. That's next time on Lessons for Living. in a hurry.